First Timothy chapter three. All right. Now that uh, summer's hit, this question, how many of you have ever been whitewater rafting? I just want to know who the sweet. OK, a lot, a lot of you. OK, and hopefully that wasn't like on the South Bosque or anything like that, because if it was, you're totally missing out. There is, man, there is just really nothing better than being on a white water rafting trip. Uh, my first experience was this with uh, Karina and I had gotten married and we went on a two day trip on the Deschutes River. And and it was awesome. I mean, you know, if you've been on this, uh, you, you know how much fun this can be. And, you know, it's interesting when you go on one of these trips, they have these guides. OK, now, if you're going on a trip, if you've never, if you've never been on one, if you see a guide and he looks like he is a goalie for a hockey team, go find another guide. OK. All right. Uh, what you want to do is you want to find the experienced guy or gal and you want to find the person that's going to guide you. And they, they start telling you all these things about safety and how you need to absolutely listen to what they're going to tell you and all that sort of stuff. And, and, you, and you launch off and literally you're floating there and, and I, I'm, you're thinking like, what in the world do you need a guide for? You know, I mean, come on, this isn't that bad. I could do this, you know. And you're just kind of making your way. But then, of course, uh, the river will eventually start picking up. And now, I mean, now we're talking, right? And then it starts moving. Pretty soon you see little whitewater, you know, happening. And now, man, that's when it gets exciting. You get like some of these class three rapids or you get a class four, man. And it is wild and is exciting. And all of a sudden, everything the guy is telling you, you want to do, right? Because if you don't follow what the guide is telling you, what's going to happen? And, and you see this, that you get thrown out of the boat, okay, or the boat actually capsized. And once you're in dangerous water, you're in class four. If you, if you hit a class five rapid, you are out of the water, you, and you're in the water and out of the boat, you are in serious danger. Because if you come head-on colliding with some of those rocks, it's not going to be pretty, okay? And then all those life-saving skills that they were trained for are going to have to come into play to try to spare your life and get you out of the water. And you see... If you're going to get to your destination when you're whitewater rafting, you're going to need what? Good guide. As go the leaders, so go the people. That's true in a lot of arenas. Let me tell you, it is especially true in the church. In a local church, you have to have spiritual leaders who've got wisdom, who have maturity, skill, They've got spiritual vitality and they can model the way because they're living it and doing it. And it shouldn't surprise us that when we come to the New Testament, there is quite a bit of attention given to spiritual leaders, especially elders slash overseers, bishops, that there is a lot of attention given to spiritual leaders in the church because as go the leaders, so go the people. And the spiritual maturity of a church, guess what, is directly tied to the spiritual maturity and the vitality and the practices of the leader and the leaders of the church. Now, when we uh, we're talking about church leadership, you start asking the question, well, what must church leaders look like? What do what does spiritual leadership really look like? And that's when we're going through First uh, Timothy. That's what we find. You would expect that a book, a letter that is focused on the intentional church of what Christ really wants his church to look like, you would expect that there would be a discussion and there would be some sentences written on what church leaders are to look like to be and to do. So what are the traits of true spiritual leaders? Now, I want to tell you that 
when we're looking at spiritual leadership and you're going, and you might go up, oh, doesn't apply to me. Actually, spiritual leaders, your elders, they are to actually be demonstrating what maturity looks like. And this is what Christ is seeking to cultivate in all of his people. But it especially has to be true in your leaders. And so don't just check out and go, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Actually, if you're a Christian, this is what Christ is seeking to cultivate in your life. And so what does it look like? Well, first of all, when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you're going to find a discussion on what church leaders are to look like. What are the essential traits? And the first one is they have to have a desire for the work. Look what he says, chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. If there is a desire, and he uses two words. First one, aspire. That speaks of like actually like reaching out after. And the second one, when he says desires, it's a, it's a fine work he desires to do. It talks of an inward motivation. Spiritual leaders have a heart for the work not just for the position. In fact, if you got a guy who's just clamoring after, I want to be an elder, I want to be the leader, you got the wrong guy. But you will find that folks that are truly mature and that there is a God-given, you can see that the Spirit has been working in this man's life to bring him to a place like, I want to serve like this. I want to be involved in that kind of work. And let me tell you, when he said it is a fine work, you might want to stress or underline the word work. If you're going to be an elder or an overseer, it's hard work. It demands extra time, a lot of energy. It's much like parenting. The work is never done. I mean, how many of you as parents feel like, huh, man, my work is totally done. Oh, man, it's like every day is a new adventure. At least it is in my home, right? The work is never done. Well, so it is with spiritual leaders. It's highly relational. You've got to deal with tough issues. And you've got to deal with tough people sometimes. You've got to make the hard call. You have to seek the Lord's will. You've got to be a man of the word. And so when you come to this work, you have to understand you have a desire for the work. And so when you come to the word overseer, you see that? Uh, there's three different terms that could be used. Uh, there's elder, the pastor or shepherd, or overseer could be translated bishop. These three terms are used rather synonymously in the New Testament. And what they do is they actually kind of highlight particular features of one general office. So an elder emphasizes dignity and maturity. A pastor or a shepherd emphasizes the idea of leadership, caring, teaching. And an overseer could be translated bishop, emphasizes the function of giving guidance and exercising authority. And you see these terms used rather synonymously. When you come to Acts chapter 20, you find all three terms used together. Paul is addressing the elders, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and verse 20, verse 28. Chapter 20, verse 28, he says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, which is the verb, for, verb form of to pastor, to shepherd the church of God. And so what happens with elders is that they are men who God raises up in a church and they've moved beyond just their own personal spiritual well-being to the place where they're actually missional. They care about the well-being of the entire church. And it is always a plurality of elders. You don't have just, well, we just have one elder or one bishop. I mean, that would be great. Actually, having just one guy in charge would really be a great way to lead a church if the guy was perfect and never sinned, okay? 
But the problem is what? There is no one like that. That is why the New Testament stresses that there is a plurality of godly men who are going to give leadership to the church. So when you come to the book of Titus, Paul is writing to Titus. He sent him to the island of Crete. Folks, they are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's actually one of their own poets, one of their welcome society. People actually pen those words about him. And Paul writes to Timothy in Titus chapter, uh, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He writes to Titus, excuse me. He says this, I want you to go and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Elders, plural, godly men. And so when you come to these, this idea of overseer and they have this heart for the work, what is the work that they're to be doing. Well, let me just give you just a brief overview of what the New Testament emphasizes of what pastors or elders, overseers or elders are to be doing. Let me just give you a brief on their job description. They are, first of all, they'll be leading. They are to set the course. They are to pray and to discern God's will, and they are to lead the church to maturity in Christ. Okay? And so that's what they do. They try to seek out God's will for the local body. They set the pace. And it is really a servant leadership. They are actually applying themselves to serve the body. And so really when Jesus talked about leadership, he said really it's a lot about sacrifice, it's about service, and it's about suffering. Leadership in the world may be a lot about prominence and prestige, but not so in the church. And the church... I want my elders and my overseers serving, sacrificing, even suffering for the sake of the church so that it might be brought to the fullness of maturity that disciples will be made in the church. Let me give you the second thing that they're supposed to be doing. They're to be feeding. Just like a shepherd makes sure that his sheep are eating the grass because if the sheep aren't eating, it's bad news for the sheep, right? And so it is. For pastors or elders, they want to make sure that their body of believers, their flock, is being well fed. On Sunday mornings, they want to make sure that they're getting a good dose of God's word. They want to make sure that the scriptures are being taught accurately, thoroughly, clearly, that shows how God's word applies to your life. They're not elders. If you're a true elder, you're not interested in keeping people entertained. Rather, you're very interested in their spiritual development. You want to see people come to know Christ and grow to maturity in him. But it's not just on Sunday morning. You want to make sure that your people are coming to a place where they're self-feeders of the word. Just like you have a goal for your children to actually, not just that you feed them all the time, but that they actually take up that little spoon and they can start feeding themselves. And one day, lo and behold, they might even be able to cut up a steak and eat it without choking. How about that? Wouldn't that be great? Well, so it is for the elders in the church. They want to create a culture and an environment where people are being nourished on the pure milk of the word. And they're going to do that in a variety of different ways. It could be preaching, but it could be in leading classes or fellowship families, some sort of small groups. Uh, it is certainly going to be happening on a one-on-one basis, but they are involved in feeding. Let me give you another element of what they're doing. They are protecting. They are making sure that bad doctrine... And bad philosophy isn't making entrance into the church body. That means that they themselves know the truth and they actually care about the people enough to the level where they're actually going to engage. And when there is false teaching or things that are not, pro- not true, according to scripture, they may be popular in Christian culture. They're like the grid and says, no, 
It's not happening here. That means they got to have the guts enough to say no to certain things and even no to certain people when they're going to push their agenda. But it's not the agenda that God has for the church. Let me give you another just part of their job description. And this is real big. They've got to be nurturing. Now, ministry to each other is the responsibility of the church. Okay, did you know that? That we're meant to care for one another. And that is actually one of the beauty, beautiful dynamics at fellowship. There's so much care and love that goes around. And I see people willing and sacrificing. I mean, I could actually give you all sorts of illustrations of how people in the church make sacrifices just to demonstrate they care. But elders especially have to take a lead in making sure that the church is being cared for. Otherwise, if they don't, what happens is they just become managers or perhaps even manipulators. And what is crucial if you're going to be a nurturer, a spiritual leader, is you've got to have what's called love. You've got to care. Because if you don't care, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, you end up just being kind of like a noisy little gong. You're making a lot of racket, but you're not relational. You're not connecting and you're not caring. Spiritual leaders have to be nurturing. And let me give you a fifth area of emphasis for spiritual leaders. They're discipling. Jesus said, the Great Commission, I want you to go and make disciples of what? All the nations. I want you to be involved in teaching them, to bring them to the fullness of maturity. Spiritual leaders, your elders, have to be involved in the investment of discipling others. Because that is the mission that Christ has given us. We are to do as Christ did with his people. And when he said, go make disciples, it is meant to be a continuing, multiplying effort. That means that elders, overseers, they not only are doing it, but they are helping the church understand and embrace the mission so that they themselves are becoming multipliers. You're bringing people from wherever they're at, whether they're a non-Christian and you're leading them to Christ, or they're a baby Christian and you're bringing them to health and fullness and maturity That's what spiritual leaders do. And that's why your elders, they have to be discipling. And let me tell you, a church has to get to the point where they're developing this kind of leader. You can't just hope like, I just hope God just drops them out of the sky, that someone else did the work and helped shape them, grow them, mature them, and develop them. A church has to get to a place where they're actually developing these kind of leaders. And so when we talk about the work, when you see that this is a fine work, Let me assure you, it is work. And you've got to have a heart, God-given desire to say, I want to apply myself to this. It's going to be costly. There's going to be sacrifice involved. Leadership always requires sacrifice. Yes, leadership is influence, but it's influence through investment. Let me give you a second essential trait of true spiritual leaders. Not only do you have to have a desire for the work, but there has to be a depth of maturity. And really, when you look at spiritual leadership in the New Testament, it really, for the most part, emphasizes the character of the leader. And that would be true of the men who are giving oversight to the church. And so beginning in verse 2, he starts talking about the qualifications. He's actually like painting a picture of the character of the type of men that must be leading the church. Now, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list because you can look at like Titus chapter 1 or in 1 Peter chapter 5 and you can pick up other characteristics. But he is going to paint a picture for Timothy as Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are the kind of men that you want to have. 
And the strength of a leader is determined by the development of his character. Now, I know in a lot of arenas, it's all about someone's uh, capacity to actually get the job done and very little about character. We've seen this in politics, right? As long as the guy or gal can do the job, it doesn't matter what their personal life looks like. See it oftentimes in the business world. Uh, Sports stars. You can be exceptionally good in your professional life, but your personal life and your moral life could be a total disaster. In our society, that that doesn't hardly even matter anymore. Uh, You can look at musicians, actors. Uh, You took it different arenas. Character often doesn't matter, but let me tell you, character counts. It always matters with God. Character counts, especially in the church. There's an author by the name of Bill Thrall, and he says this, quote, The dysfunctions of many leaders are rooted in a common reality. Their capacities have been extensively trained, while their character has been merely presumed. Let me tell you, the Bible makes no presumption. The character of the leader is absolutely critical and essential. And the the Greek word for character has the idea of like an impression, like it's like an outward force that makes like an impression, makes an inward reality. Well, that's what God intends to do with his people. The presence of Christ, his Holy Spirit, he is seeking to develop the character of Christ in his people. And there's kind of like four S's you might want to remember of how God shapes his, individ- his people. He uses his son, his spirit, his scripture, and his saints as people work through their circumstances. Oftentimes, those circumstances are difficult. But that's what God uses. So what is the character of a leader? What is the character of an elder, of these men that are supposed to be leading the church? And I want you to personally actually use this as a time of just even evaluation for yourself. How is God at work in your life? Is he addressing these areas? Are you moving to maturity as we just kind of quickly walk through this list? And so he says, verse two, an overseer then must be above reproach. And this is the overarching qualification. It has the idea that he's blameless He is a man of unquestionable character. There's like no handle on his life that you can accuse him of. Like some sort of glaring flaw, like, yeah, everybody sees this. There's no way. So he has to be above reproach. Leaders are to exemplify what Christ is seeking to uh, build and develop in all of his people. Some of you are familiar with this book called The Leadership Challenge, written by Kuzis and Posner. And this was a pretty fascinating study. They had this open-ended question they presented to 1,500 managers. And the question was this, what values, personal traits, or characteristics do you look for and admire in your superiors? And they got all sorts of answers, and they waded through those, and they had these independent judges, and they put them into categories. Do you know what the number one by far category it was that they're looking for in their leaders? Got a guess? Integrity. Integrity. That they were individuals that were truthful, trustworthy, and they lived by solid convictions. That's what a church has to have. You got to have men who are above reproach. Now, there's no perfect individual, okay, except Christ. It's not like they are absolutely, they've never made a mistake or they've never sinned in their life because obviously we're all major sinners, right? But there's no glaring handle that you can hold on to in their life. 
And then to show you the kind of individual he's after, he says they need to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, literally a one woman man. Okay. now this is a husband who is consistently both inwardly and outwardly devoted and faithful to his wife. That's what it means. Now, this particular husband of one wife or this one woman man, I've counted. There's at least 11 different interpretations of people having to like you can tell that some people are really trying to switch this to make it basically say nothing that would apply to them. But it's it's talking about the kind of individual you're after. He is literally committed if he's married to one woman. He's, he's not a guy who's uh, chasing after other girls. He's not flirting with the secretary. Uh, now, this is not a... Now, some people say that, well, this is a prohibition against polygamy. And I do not think that it is because, uh, first of all, in the Roman society in which this was written, polygamy was not popular and very few were polygamists. And furthermore, according to Jesus and Paul, you, it's, it's one woman that you're married to. You couldn't even be a member of the church if you're a polygamist. Some see this as a requirement barring those who've remarried after death. But actually, Scripture actually encourages remarriage for those who are widows. And it's really, it's a focus on sexual purity. Some would say, well, this excludes divorced men from church leadership. But actually, it just says that he's a one-woman man. There is a consistency in his life. Um, The Bible actually doesn't prohibit all remarriage after divorce. Some think it's a requirement that excludes single men from church leadership, that you've got to be married. Well, if that was the case, then Paul would be out, right? All right, because he wasn't married. No, it talks about the character that he is a, he's single-minded. There is a purity in his life. Uh, this is a, not an individual who's driven by sexual addiction or perversion or pornography or has some sort of sexual activity outside of marriage, but he is inwardly and outwardly a man of faith, and of commitment. You want a guy who's got a depth of maturity. Let me show, tell you, it will show up in their marriage. Let me look, show you another characteristic he says. They are to be temperate. Literally, the word Greek word means wineless. That means that they are, it was used metaphorically to mean someone that's alert. They're watchful. They are intent. They're alert to spiritual realities. They are prudent. As the next one he says. They have their, or, their priorities in order. They're keeping Christ at the center of their personal life, their family life, their work life. They're not like driven to excess, like it's all about entertainment. One guy uh, told me that he'd get home and and after he kind of did the family meal thing, he basically just locked himself up and he played these video games and he literally could play them all night. And this, this guy had a very responsible job and I'm like, you can't keep doing that. And he's like, yeah, I think God's convicting me that I need to like cut back for sure. That's totally out of line. That is so excessive because when you, you could, whether it's your entertainment or your TV or whatever, you got to be able to set some parameters because there's things that are far more important to that. Well, a guy who's prudent, he's demonstrating sound judgment and wisdom. Another term that he says is that you want a guy who's respectable, that his life is looked up to, that it's well-ordered, that it's honorable, that he's living by respectable ideals and values. You're like, you know, I'd like to be like that guy. That, that's, that's holiness in action. I like that. Another one he says is that they need to be hospitable. This literally could be translated showing to love 
to strangers. They're extending care, kindness, practical help to others. They're the kind of individual that makes you feel welcome, right? You know, when there's somebody who's brand new or they're different, they got a different culture, maybe they're dressed differently, and there's that little tension, that little awkwardness. And what do we normally do? Like, oh, I'll just kind of walk over here and ignore that. And there's my little friend in you. The guy who's hospitable, you know what they do? They break that awkwardness. They just, they make a person feel welcome. Shake their hand. They're the kind of individual that can have you over in their home. They're warm. There's a tenderness about them. They're secure enough in their identity with Christ that they can actually engage others. Not so fearful like, oh, they're different or I don't understand or whatever. Uh, You don't want someone like that. You want someone that can engage, that truly cares at a heart level. Now, there's an ability, and there's another one that's coming up here, but right as he's making his way through this, he says that they need to be able to teach. They have to have certain skills, and one of the skills that is emphasized for overseers or elders and pastors is they have to have the ability to teach. That means they not only understand the scriptures and the foundational doctrines of the Bible, but they can communicate in such a way that you can actually understand them and see how this applies to your life. And they are involved in teaching. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily have to be preaching messages everywhere, but they're involved in teaching in some capacity, whether in a small group, uh, certainly on a one-on-one basis. Probably some of the best teaching takes place in a discipleship format where you're like talking about real-life issues and they're presenting their, what's kind of they're facing. And you talk about how the scriptures come to bear. Your elders have to be able to teach. When they're looking at the one skill they must have, they have to have the skill of the ability to teach. And then he keeps moving on with other characteristics. They, verse 3, they're not to be addicted to wine. Okay? This has the idea that they're not under the bondage or the influence of alcohol. And other drugs would be kind of in this general category. They don't have an addictive personality and they're not strung out on drugs or they're not always finding themselves needing to drink. Now, this is obviously a really touchy issue, right? And in previous times, like we went through the book of Ephesians, we spent quite a bit of time actually discussing this issue, the whole idea of drinking. It does not say that they should not partake of wine, but it says they must not be addicted to it. So now this applies to all alcoholic beverages in case you're thinking like, oh, I'm into beer and not wine. (laughs) Oh, man, you know, okay, you're like, no, it's all, all alcoholic beverages, okay? But you need, to, you need to think this one really very carefully through. I'd suggest you pray about it and you actually examine the scriptures because you need to develop a conviction of where you're going to land on this issue. And if you are a parent, it is extremely important you think this through real carefully. Your kids, they're going to pick up on where you're at and they're going to know. Okay, so what you want to do is you want to develop a biblical conviction. You land on it. You pray on it. You come to that conclusion. And then you want to be careful not to be judgmental toward others. You want to live by grace. But think it through. If alcohol should have any role in your life or or to what degree it will. But one thing for sure is that it's not to be something that it is the regular ongoing pattern. There is not an addiction. Certainly with your elders. Then he says the next characteristic here. Here's not a word that we use a lot. He says they're not to be addicted to wine or pugnacious. Okay. And we got any pugilists in here. Okay. You know what a pugilist is, right? What is a pugilist? 
Boxer, right? Yeah, that's right. A pugnacious individual, they're a fighter. They like to fight. Now, it's interesting, but if you study kind of New Testament times, uh, it, is not, it was not uncommon for grown men sometimes to settle disputes with fists or with sticks or rocks, okay? Does that just sound like barbaric? But they do it, right? And, and Paul's saying, listen, for spiritual leaders, you can't have a fighter. You can't have a guy who's pugnacious. And yeah, sticks and stones and fists getting hit, that's one thing. But your verbal assaults, And your verbal assassination of character actually cuts a lot deeper and hurts a lot more and lasts a lot longer. God doesn't want that for his people. He wants holiness. He wants you set apart to him. And that's going to look like how you handle your anger. Are you a short-fused individual? It takes about five seconds to set you off and you go ballistic on someone physically or verbally. Let me assure you, God is trying to address that issue in your life. And if you're a man, your wife has been praying that you're paying attention right now. Please do not elbow anybody at this point, okay? But God wants his leaders holy. They're not to be fighters. And Charles Spurgeon told his students at the pastor's college, don't go around the world with your fist held up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. Okay? These are always really lovely individuals, man. They got their theological point. They're about one issue kind of guy or gal. And they just look for a fight, man. And they're always looking to work someone over. That's not maturity. It needs to be tempered. And so with your elders... They cannot be fighters. If you have, by the way, if you've been beat up by spiritual, some sort of spiritual leader, some pastor, and chances are you have been, and you're still reeling from some of the effects, and you've got some battle scars to prove it, there's a book called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards that actually addresses this very issue. It comes from King David's perspective, and it's trying to answer the question, why does God allow King Saul's in our life? And if you want just the one-point summary on it, The book tells us that God allows King Saul's in our lives for us to learn how to overcome the King Saul in our heart. And it'll help you understand and and make your way through those difficulties. Another characteristic, you can't have a judgmental, critical guy, okay? They can't be pugnacious. You don't want a grumpy old man for an elder, okay? That might make a nice B-movie, Grumpy old men, but you don't want them for church leaders, okay? You just don't. And God doesn't want you to be some grumpy old man, right? Kicking the dog, mad, scowling, you know, always in a bad mood. No, he doesn't. He then goes on to say, not pugnacious, but let me show you what he should look like. Look at the next one he says, but gentle. There's a gentleness about them. It has the idea that they're considerate, genial, gracious. They're quick to pardon a failure. They're one who doesn't hold a grudge. There's maturity they look a lot like Jesus and they act like him. They're, they're gentle. They're strength under control. And then he says they're also peaceable. That means they're peaceful. They're reluctant to fight. They, they promote unity and harmony. Um, another characteristic, they're free from the love of money. Okay? And you might be sitting there like, well, that's me, man. I am free from the love of money. I don't have any. Okay? All right? I am free. And I hate it, right? Okay, no. No. When you talk about free from the love of money, it's that money and wealth and treasure is not your driving pursuit. You're not to be greedy or obsessed with just obtaining it. Now, that doesn't mean that an elder or an overseer can't be wealthy. They can be. It's just not their drive in life. 
They may be very successful in certain arenas and they may have acquired a lot of wealth legitimately. On the other hand, they may have not. And I can, you know, it's interesting. You can find people that have made a lot of money that, that love it. And just as much, you, you can find that same drive in people that hardly have any of it. And yet it's just always what they're thinking about. And they're driven by it. They've got a love for it even if they don't have it. Your spiritual leaders, whether they make a lot of money or not so much, they've got to be free from the love of money. They also, they have to have an, another major ability or skill. We already mentioned one. But your elders, they not only have to have strong character, spiritual leaders have to have strong character, but you also have to have competency and capacity. You have to have certain skills. It's not that you're just a really good guy, but leadership requires that you have skills, that you have competency, and the scriptures wed them together. They're linked together. And we already mentioned one, you have to have the ability to teach. You have to have the ability to present spiritual truths in such a way that people understand. But there is another one. There is another skill that elders, overseers have to have, and that is they have to have the ability to lead, and it starts with their family. Look what he says, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The most effective school for church leadership is the home. Because leadership in the church is matured through relationships at home. And the church is just the family of God. It's the household of God that Timothy talks about. Now Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It's the household of God. It's a family, and it's run a lot like a family. And if you're going to have good leadership in the church... Let me tell you where that's developed. Good leadership in the home. Now, that doesn't mean that their kids are absolutely perfect and they never make a mistake. Guess what? They're sinners, just like their parents. Okay? In fact, I've never met a really good parent that didn't have, that had their kids 100% just perfect all the time. Doesn't exist. Unrealistic. But you do have to have leadership in the home where there is respect and influence. They're not ruling with an iron fist. It's not about power and authority, okay? It's just, I am totally dominating you. You know, the kind of dad that just, he's just mean, man. He just kind of looks at you and everybody's just kind of shaking. Is he? And they live like that. No. You know, some of you grew up that way and like, oh, man, you just described my child life right there, you know? No. And I'm sorry if that was your case. But it's not to be for spiritual leaders. They lead by example. They lead by influence. There's a calmness to their home. They create some structure. There's an environment. They are helping their kids move in the right direction. There's love. There's care. There's respect. That's what you're after. He must be one who manages his own household well. His, his home is not in financial ruin because he doesn't know how to balance a checkbook or he hasn't set some sort of budget. He, they live by priorities. They're probably living on less than what they make. Their home, there's a sense of well-being and sanity. There's a joy to be a part of that. And when you've got, uh, you got a father like that, you've got a guy who could potentially be a very strong leader in your church. In fact, probably already is, just by sheer example. Those kind of people have a tendency and gravitate towards spiritual leadership. God wants to use those kind of individuals. Leaders, leaders in the home, they set the pace for their home. Leaders in the church, 
They set the pace for the congregation. And they are responsible. You can't be a good dad if you're a passive dad. If you're just like, I just turn into a wallflower, man, and I just get absorbed in the environment. I try to ignore everything that my kids are doing, and I only show up when my wife is absolutely pleading me, and I'm like, oh, kids, be good. And then you just hide back into the woodwork and back in the TV, or you just dive into work, because that's the one place you get stroked in life. No, leadership in the home can't be passive, because if you are a passive-aggressive kind of guy, That's poor leadership. Christ even now is seeking to take you to another level of engagement, of involvement. You've got to be in the game. But that's especially true for elders in the church. You can't have them passive like, I do nothing, man. I just stand out and I I won't function. No, they've got to be responsible. You've got to have men of the word. If they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. They're concerned. They're proactive. They're thinking through things. They're taking the initiative. They're engaged and they're involved. And it's all going back to maturity. God is seeking to develop maturity in us, and your leaders must have it. And that's why he says in verse 6, And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. I love being around new believers. That is exciting when you hear the freshness of their, their newfound faith in Christ. But they wouldn't be real good choice for leaders, because you know why? They haven't sunk real deep roots into Christ and in his word. They need maturity. There's times, there's testing, there's stress, there's trials. This is what shapes and develops individuals. And you can't have a new convert because if you put a new believer in a position of strong leadership, too much, too soon, too bad. Huh? That's how it works. They will, like it says here in the scripture, pride will take over and you're setting them up for failure. You want to groom them for success. You want to take the investment and help them grow, mature, and develop. And so that's what they're after, maturity. Because elders, overseers have to be mature people. They're dealing with difficult situations. Oftentimes, even with difficult people, they have to do it with gentleness, and yet they have to be firm. And so you look at a guy who's been tested over time. It's kind of like this with character. If you've been going through this and you're like, whoa, there's some issues that you hit upon that aren't quite right in my life. Character weaknesses are like broken bones. Okay, what they do is they present us from functioning to our fullness. What needs to be happen is they need to be set, set in order. There needs to be healing that needs to take place. And that needs treatment and time. But friends, address it. How is character developed? Well, remember, we, we keep talking about this. And in fact, you've seen this before. This is our vision of our church. As a believer in Christ, he's established in Christ, he grows deep. His roots are sinking deep in Christ by knowing God and his word. As a result, your character is starting to be transformed. Very characteristics we're talking about here. And that, through the power of the Spirit, is showing up in your relationships and your ministry and your career. And if you've got some sort of sinful pattern, you're sitting here going like, Oh, man, this passage just nailed me. Well, let me just tell you how do you overcome sinful patterns. Call it what it is. Sin. Don't rationalize it. Identify the problem. Second, confess and communicate with Christ. Tell him about it. He knows. He wants you to repent, to change your heart and your mind and your thinking on this, to change direction. Renew yourself with God's grace. I tell you what, isn't it wonderful? We've got a Savior who loves us unconditionally. And he wants us to bask in that grace. And that gives us the freedom to move forward. You don't have to keep living the way you're living. If you've got some sort of sinful pattern going on. 
He wants you to enjoy grace, maturity, the power of his presence in your life. And as you see Christ, you're drawn to him. And you redirect your steps. You take small steps every day. And then what you're doing, you just connect with others. Find someone who can help you overcome this so you can live in victory. But the strength of a leader is determined by the development of his character. And if you don't have Christ-centered leaders in your church, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have man-centered congregations. And yeah, they might do some earthly good. They will be a far cry, though, what Christ intends for his church to be. Believers who are absolutely in love with Christ, they are worshiping him and they are growing in the fullness of maturity in him. A lot of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Coach John Wooden. Remember him? He wrote a book. They call me Coach. You probably know something about it. He won 12 12 championships, NCAA basketball championships, seven of them in a row. The man was always known for his character, and he said this in his book. Be more concerned with your character than with your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. So what are the traits of spiritual leaders? They have to have a desire for the work. They've got to have a depth of maturity, and let me give you the third one. They have to have a demonstrated testimony to the world. Look at verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. They have to have a proven testimony in this world. If it doesn't work out there in our community, it's not going to work in here. You've got to be real. Really, we should be able to ask, hey, Would it be a really good idea if this person was a leader, an elder in our church? If they'd go, what are you thinking? Okay, that means like more work is needed, right? Would would the people that you work with, would they suggest like you should be an elder? Would they think higher or lower of the church that you're part of? You want to have a proven testimony in the world. Church overseers, they got to have these three characteristics. And the problem is this. Most leaders focus too much on competence and not a whole lot on character. Most of them plateau or quit or uh, they're relieved of their leadership responsibility because of character issues. You guys guys know this General Schwarzkopf, remember him from Gulf War fame? He said this, 99% of leadership failures in the 20th century were failures of character, i.e. Bill Clinton. Richard Nixon. Guess what? The trend is continuing right on to the 21st century. How about retired Army General and XCI Chief David Petraeus? Or Marine General John Allen? Do you know what's going on right now in our military? There is a crisis that's going on because some of the most admired leaders have broken the bond of trust. You know what sergeants just plow into the minds of those who are learning how to serve into into our young troops? They always say this, do the right thing when no one is watching. Because Because commanders need to know that when they give the order, that those troops are going to do the right thing even when no one is watching. And vice versa, the subordinates are counting on that their leaders are tactily, tactily and morally sound. They are making good decisions from the right heart. They have what is called integrity. And for overseers in the church, they lead from the inside out. And if the church is going to move forward, 
If it's going to move forward with the mission of making disciples of all the nations, it's got to have leaders, leaders that can be trusted, leaders that can truly engage in the work of the ministry, and they can train others to do the same. And it all gets started from the inside. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage. Father, you, uh, you've had written in Scripture truth that hits home and sometimes even hits hard. But we know that it is the power of your Son's presence in our lives that is seeking to bring about maturity, development, godliness. So, Father, for any sin that we've become aware of, we, we simply confess it. We ask that you would strengthen our character And I thank you that you've given us strong and good elders here at Fellowship. May you continue to develop the leadership of your church for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.